All right, good morning. How is everyone? We are in the book of Colossians, chapter 2. Starting in verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you are circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for the privilege of sending out the cooks. We pray you'd get the last amount of support that they need raised. And I do agree with the prayers that have already been offered that you'd bless their time as they are overseas, and connect them, make, just make divine appointments and connections for them, Lord. People, um, as Philippians talks about, where they can partner with the gospel, Lord, to take it forth. So bless their time, God. Give them, give them prayer partners, give them financial partners, and give them co-laborers that can go with them uh, to do the work that they've been called to do. Lord, thank you for everything you're doing for us. You are so good to us. Even when we're not good. You're still good. And we thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness that we have in Christ. We thank you for the life that we have in Christ. We thank you for what you are doing in our hearts. And we pray that you would continue it, Lord. We know you will continue your work, Lord. We ask um, until the day of Jesus Christ that you would bring it to completion for your glory. Bless our time now, Lord, as we look into your word. We pray this with the authority you give us in Jesus. Amen. All right, who, who um, in high school or maybe even in college ever had to read the book uh, 1984? All right, some of you. You guys know the, the kind of the basic premise or synopsis of the book by George Orwell. It's based in a futuristic uh, country where, and it's kind of a dystopia where there's, he's the, the, the main character, Winston, is living in a totalitarian government. And um, this totalitarian government, like most, uh, likes to have Big Brother observing anything and everything through cameras, TVs in the house, and all sorts of things. When it first came out many years ago, it was, in, in a sense, kind of laughed at. But um, in the last five or ten years, people are like, wow, he's kind of a prophet. Um, and one of the things that happens in the book, and part of Winston's job, if I remember correctly, is the rewriting of, of history. You've got to rewrite history. Um, ironically, recently, um, a feminist organization approached uh, the estate of George Orwell asking permission to rewrite his book. <laughs> From a feminist perspective. And the estate agreed. Like, irony, right? Uh, what could go wrong? So if you don't like the story, just, like, rewrite it. Uh, say, you know, and, and everyone 
this is not the first time it's happened. It won't be the last time. Um, same with the, the Scarlet Little Letter. Anyone ever have to read that book or read it intentionally on your own? Okay, based in Puritan times by a lady that commits adultery. Uh, if you read the book, uh, should I ruin it for you? Hmm. It's, not a, it's not a happy ending. But when they redid the movie uh, a number of years ago, happy ending. The adulteress and her lover ride off into the sunset together with their child. So people are always trying to rewrite endings. We like happy endings. We, we want to rewrite history so that it makes us feel better. And here's the thing. People do the same thing when it comes to the history of Jesus and who he is. So you get, when I was in college, you get um, an organization called the Jesus Seminar. And all these scholars, supposedly, and what they did was they would go through the Gospels and they would, they would, they came up with like their own gospel version, so to speak, almost like Thomas Jefferson, kind of, um, but their own gospel version of, these are the words we know Jesus said, these are the words he might have said, and these are the words he definitely did not say. And guess what category most of J Jesus' words fall into? The ones he definitely did not say from the gospels. Um, the Jesus Seminar came and went, then um, we get the fiction work, The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown, that comes and is, I mean, always trying to rewrite the story of the church and rewrite the story of Jesus. Bart Ehrman, who is a little bit more recent, has come, and again, questioning the veracity of what Jesus said. Listen, these, it, it's just, it's a lot of the same stuff, if you re actually take the time to read it, I don't know if you should waste your time to do that, um, there's people that do that for us and then kind of give it to us in an in a understandable version and kind of critique it. But these people come and go, and there will be more Bart Ehrmans and Da Vinci Codes and Jesus seminars that come along the, the way. Um, people want to rewrite the history of Jesus. People also want to rewrite the history of man. And so you get organizations like uh, BioLogos, which claims to be a Christian organization, and it um, pushes theistic evolution. And its, it's, it's really main goal is to get the, theistic evolution, essentially a seat at the table in Christianity, and to be um, part of the conversation when we talk about God's creation. Sadly, Tim Keller, um, who recently passed away, he endorsed the group. In fact, you can go to their website and you can see a, a picture of Tim Keller on there endorsing them. It's sad. Um, so they purport and push this theistic evolution. Um, it's interesting. Guess what they say is their greatest challenge to try to get people to have open minds regarding theistic evolution? Homeschool moms. No, seriously. It's true. The homeschool moms get to them and, and teach them the creationism, and so by the time they hear about this evolution, they're like, the kids are like, that sounds stupid. <laughs> I mean, it's true. And, and if you look at the studies, when kids are brought up with creationism, and then they hear about evolution, they're like, that's really dumb. But interestingly enough, kids that are brought up with evolution, when they are presented with the theory of creation, they're like, huh, yeah, I, I could see that as a possibility. Interesting. It's kind of like we've, that design has sort of been built into us. Here, here's what's interesting. I was looking at their website the other day, BioLogos, and they were talking about the... Um, the Genesis, uh, the flood in Genesis. And it said, when discoveries, 
I'm quoting from their web, web page. When discoveries in God's world conflict with the interpretations of God's word, Christians have three options. And so here's the three options they list. Uh, we can, one, abandon our faith in order to accept the results of science. Two, deny the scientific evidence to maintain our interpretations of Scripture. Three, reconsider our interpretations of Scripture in light of the evidence from God's creation. Now, they're going to argue for, for that third one. But, but there's one more option. It's reconsider our interpretations of God's creation in light of Scripture, right? What, they, what do they want to do? The, the last one, reconsider our interpretations of Scripture in light of the evidence from God's creation. So God's creation, what we, you know, empirical evidence is what is guiding the way. No, I mean, they don't even list the fourth option. That's not even um, academically honest, to be truthful with you. But the option is also there, the fourth one, reconsider our interpretations of God's creation in light of the Scriptures. And Scripture has the final say, Yes. So we don't look at the world and then take God's word and twist it so as to try to make sense of God's word. We look to the word and let scripture tell us about God's world. Uh, uh, not too long ago, Andrew and I went to an apologetics meeting and the speaker was a professor uh, from Washington University um, and said he was a Christian and he believed in theistic evolution and we listened for like an hour or an hour and a half of this professor trying to fit theistic evolution and, and debate, not really debate because it was just a, 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 a one-sided, you know, presentation, but to present arguments for how this theistic evolution could fit into the Genesis 1 chapter. And I just was like scratching my head at, it, you have to jump through so many uh, hermeneutical hoops to try to make that even possibly make sense. It's like the plain reading of scripture. Six days. Six literal days. God did that. Here's the thing. There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. And the unbelieving heart will believe what the unbelieving heart longs to believe. So people will take something and they want to take evolution and somehow make that fit into Christianity. Theistic evolution. Like, which... It's really, if you think about it, it's an oxymoron. Because if you look at evolution, it's random chance. It's unguided. So then we're going to take random chance and unguided and say God directed an undirected thing. I mean, it, it just, it, it ends up not making sense. It, it's self-referentially absurd. It refutes itself. So why don't these people see the truth? I mean, mountains and mountains and mountains of evidence about the historicity of Jesus, about who he is, about the empty tomb, about the veracity of the scriptures, about the truthfulness of the gospels, on and on and on. Well, think about the rich man and the beggar Lazarus. Look at Luke 16. We'll just look at it briefly. You're probably familiar with the story. Verse 19, we'll read it um, anyways. There was a rich man, verse 19, Luke 16. 
a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said then, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Mountains and mountains of evidence. And Jesus is saying, look, someone rises from the dead, a foreshadowing of his own resurrection, they're not going to believe. And what do we have today? People not believing. And what happens is, is, is people become skeptics. Maybe they grow up in the church. Sometimes they don't. It's more common these days that people aren't growing up in the church. But people grow up in the church, or they don't, but they become skeptics, and what do they do? They come, and they downplay the work of Christ in your life. You know, they'll say, it wasn't real, or it didn't happen, or they'll mock the God you serve, or they'll make you question the veracity of what you believe. Many of them have no interest in truth. Now, if someone has an interest in truth, I'm, I'm willing to have a conversation or a debate or a discussion, but a lot of them don't have interest in truth. Listen, let me just say this. Don't let them take away from you what God has done in Jesus through you, all right? He's done an amazing work through you and in you. Don't let them take away that. The work of God, as we've been looking at, is done by God himself. And so what have we been looked at that he's been doing? Well, he's filled us in Christ. We've died with Christ. We've been buried with Christ. And now we're going to look at the next aspect of what God did for us in Christ. Look back in Colossians in chapter 2. We'll pick it back up here. So we were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, and the powerful working of God who raised them from the dead. Both these words, buried and raised, have the Greek uh, prefix S-U-N attached to them, soon. So it's really, the idea is, is, is it's really bringing out the richness of what Christ has done for us. We've, we have been buried with Jesus. We have been raised with Christ it's hugely important because what it does is it points out to our participation with Christ and what he experienced and what went through. What does this mean for us? That whenever we see those words in Christ, which appear a whole lot in the New Testament, there should be very, very precious words to us. Those two words. Because it's not talking about 
like a spatial proximity to Jesus. So we're not talking about being next to him. We're not talking about being near him. We're not talking about being by him. But we're talking about rather being in him. And what does that mean? It's talking about being united with him. It's, It's referencing the fellowship that we have with Christ. You could also word, use the word communion. That's why when we have the Lord's, Lord, that's part of the reason it's called communion. We have the Lord's Supper, and you're coming down. What you're, what you're proclaiming, it's almost like you're affirming your baptism every time you do that. Is your baptism, you're proclaiming to the world and to believers, like, I trust in Jesus, I believe in him, I've repented of my sins. Well, when you take the Lord's Supper, what you're proclaiming is, hey, that thing that I did however long ago, like, I'm still there, I'm still proclaiming it, I still believe it. And I have fellowship with Jesus, so I'm going to show it that I'm still fellowshipping with him. I'm still in communion with him by taking, oh, communion. You can fellowship with the Lord. It is a a sign and a symbol of what God has already done in you, that you have that fellowship. So when you're coming to take the Lord's Supper, it should remind you that you actually have a communion with the Lord, a fellowship with him, a friendship if you will. You are in right fellowship with God, a right standing with him. How does that occur? Because he's adopted you into his family. I mean, we all know people that have been adopted. Is there like a a, a secondary table for the adopted kids than for the the, uh, naturally born kids? No, everyone comes to the same table. Why? Because they're equal. Adopted or otherwise, they're equal. So we get to fellowship, not at some secondary table, but we fellowship with none other than God himself at his table. And he's just got one table. And if you're one of his children, you've got a place at the table. It's a pretty beautiful thing. So here we're learning that we're raised up with him. Why? Because of the fellowship that we have in Christ. We are in Christ. Look at 1 John. Keep your place in Colossians because we're coming back. But look at 1 John chapter 1. And, and we're talking about mountains and mountains of evidence. And I mean, here, listen to what the Apostle John says. Verse 1 of chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He's like, there's evidence. There's evidence. And we saw it. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So if you've been bought by the blood of Jesus, if you've been brought into the kingdom of God, then you have a fellowship with the Father and with the Son. And nothing and no one can take that away from you. That means that fellowship you can enjoy at any moment at any time. You should think about it, meditate on it, reflect upon it, but realize even right now you have a fellowship with none other than God himself. I was talking with a brother the other day, and he was asking for my testimony, and so I was sharing him with it, and um, listen, the thing that that made it click, everyone's different, I get that, but the thing that made it click, because I had all the head knowledge, I grew up in the church, had all the head knowledge, 
and God uses different, different things for different people. I get that. Um, all his truth from his scriptures. But what, what made it go from my head to my heart was that idea that God wanted to know me. And of course, he already knew me. But he wanted to have a relationship with me. He wanted this fellowship that we read about and this communion that we read about. Like, that's what he, he wanted. And, and just like Justice read earlier, like, God wants all to be saved. He wants all to be saved. So, yes, he wanted me to be saved and to come into fellowship with him. And that the creator of the universe wanted to know me and wanted me to know him, like, that just blew my mind. Like, who is little old me? Like, who am I, right? Isaiah, who am I, Lord? But, but he wanted to know me and wanted to have fellowship with me and ha- wanted to have that relationship with me. And for whatever reason, all of that made like, it was like the key piece to the puzzle that made everything go together and caused me to fall to my knees and repent. I had all the knowledge about Jesus dying on the cross. I believed in my head, but not in my heart, that he was raised physically from the dead, but it really didn't mean much. It was almost like historical facts. Oh yeah, that's good, that's good. That's good information. Did not, he was no stretch if you're like, well, if, if you had to rank like, you know, the top, top different things or people in your life, like where would God have been? He wouldn't have been in the top 25. Like there was so many more important things in my life. People and things than God. And hearing that made him go from wherever he was at on that list all the way to number one, which is where he belongs and where he has to be. He's the king. He's the Lord. He's the savior. He's on the throne. So sometime in 1995, and people are like, did you pray the prayer? I, I don't remember praying a prayer. I just know sometime between February 9th and February 14th in 1995, God changed my life. And I haven't been the same since. And all these things that I've been, been uh, teaching you about and preaching about, like that happened sometime in there. I tried, to, I tried to look through, e- there were emails back then, if you can believe it or not. It was like, in its, its early form, <clears throat> um, like its earliest form. I still have copies of some of them, but I tried to like trace, you know, different emails I was sent, see, see if I could like pinpoint the day. I couldn't pinpoint it. I just could see that sometime between those six days, like God changed my life. I bent the knee, acknowledged who he was, repented of my sin, trusted in him. Listen, and all these things that we're looking at came true for me. It was very beautiful. Let me say this. I want you to notice. I want to talk about for a moment your, the, the security that you have in Christ. Okay. Your position, listen to me, your position is so secure that God can look at you as if your resurrection has already occurred. You have been raised with him. You were raised with him. It's past tense. That's how secure it is. So you are secure in Christ. This resurrection is not future. Yes, it will be, but it's also now. Yes, it is. So when we become a part of the body of Christ, we were baptized into the ascension of our Lord Jesus, his rising from the dead. That's what we're being baptized. You are secure in Christ. Look back at Colossians And just jump ahead one chapter to chapter 3. Because he says something similar here. Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, what's past tense again? He's still talking about it in the past tense, as if it's already occurred. If then you have been raised with Christ, and then he gives the command, 
seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He's talking as if it has already occurred. That's how assured he is of it. Our resurrection, listen to this, our resurrection is as guaranteed as Jesus' resurrection. Why? Because when Jesus was resurrected, you were in him being resurrected. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Yes. Did he ascend to the Father? Yes. Then you will too. That's a fact. So look at the power that God displays in Christ. We see that his power is manifest greatly. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the supreme demonstration of the power of God. And those who have been raised with Christ have been raised through faith in the divine power which brought him back from the dead. And from now on, they have new life. That power energizes us and maintains the life that we now have. Look back in Colossians chapter 2. You were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This, this power was first manifest, Paul talks about in chapter 1, if you look back, in Paul's own ministry. Look what he says at the very end of chapter 1, Colossians. Verse 29, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, you could translate it power, with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So it's manifest in Paul's ministry, and now it's manifest in believers' lives. It's the power working through us. And how is it manifest in either Paul's ministry or in ours? Because it was manifested first in Christ's life. God raised Jesus from the dead. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What a rich verse. What a rich verse. I mean, look at all the things going on. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, so if you got the spirit... Now here, it's, it's attributing different parts of the scripture. Some places it talks about the Father raising Jesus. Other parts it talks about Jesus says, I'll raise my, myself. And then here, look at what it's attributing it to the Spirit. So it's, it's the Trinity, all three members raising Jesus. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. So raise Christ Jesus, what's he going to do? Give life to your mortal bodies. How is he going to do it? Through his spirit who dwells in you. So we're in Christ and the spirit is in us. God's power manifest in Christ. Back in Colossians, the last thing mentioned in this passage that God does for us as, our, as a result of our union with Christ is that we're made alive. Verse 13, And you who were dead, in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Notice the very first word in verse 
13. What, what, what's your first word? Mine's and. Is that yours too? Verse 13. <clears throat> Don't tell me if it's a different word, okay? It doesn't go with my sermon. No, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> that's, that's what's there. The word and. The word, okay, so you got in all these things, you know, filled, died, buried, raised, and, oh, there's one more thing. What? Made alive. Okay? Made alive. So the dead made alive. So he's explaining everything that happens to us when we get saved, but he's not finished. He's not finished yet. The work is still going on, and there's one last thing. He's making us alive. Before you were dead, now you're alive. Before, you're a walking corpse. Now, you are truly alive. Before you looked alive, now you are alive, and you live. Think about the story of, uh, of Elijah in the Old Testament, and um, that the widow was helping him, and her son dies. And what does he do? He goes there. Second Kings, it says, Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, so, I mean, so the kid, I mean, the kid is dead. The flesh of the child became warm. And, the, and it goes on to describe, and this dead child who'd been laying there, dead, comes back to life. What did that dead boy do to become alive? Nothing. It was all God through Elijah. So what's the result of this, of us being filled and dying and being buried and being raised and being made alive? Well, God's still not done. Look what he keeps doing here. Back in Colossians 2, verse 14, he cancels the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So every single person ever born it's like they have an iou they, there's a record of debt against them they owe god something they owe him their life because of their sin the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands what does god do this he set aside nailing it to the cross he took care of our sin and then finally, what does he do? Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, we've looked many times before, but these rulers and authorities, he's not, just, he's not talking earthly kings or leaders. He's talking about spiritual entities. He's talking about demons. Think about what Ephesians 2 says. Listen to this. In which you once walked, talking about our sinfulness, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So, when we're unsaved, when we're unbelievers, what are we doing? We're following the prince of the power of the air. You're like, I followed, when I, when I was unsaved, I followed Satan? Well, yes, you did. We all did. You might not have realized it, I mean, that's what it's saying. You followed the prince of the power of the air. Why? Because what does is, what is the father of lies do? What does Satan do? I mean, he's, he's the father of sin. He sins, he sins, he sins. You just are following after his pattern. Jesus is pretty blunt with the people of his day. At times, he has harsh words for those that are hard-hearted. He says in John 8, You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. 
And so really, I mean, we can be, of, we can have one of two fathers, really. I mean, everyone that is an unbeliever, they, they hate authority, they skirt it, they don't want anything to do with it, but guess what? I mean, they're, they're under the power and influence of the enemy. You can have one of two fathers. You can have God your father or Satan. And if you're of Satan, what are you going to do? The things that Satan does. Sin, 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 sin. First John, look at there. Just briefly, I want you to see this for yourself. First John chapter 3. Verse 7, 1 John 3. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And then notice what it says in verse 10. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. I mean, there's, there's, there's just two options. Children of God, children of the devil. Here's the thing. If you've been bought by the blood of Jesus... If you've repented of your sins, if you've trusted in Christ for what he did for you, if you've sought the forgiveness of your sins from your heavenly Father, then all that we've been preaching about and teaching about, all that I've been talking about, is for you. It applies to you. It's already happened. It's in the past. Furthermore, that means you are not under the power or authority or control of the devil. Not at all. One theologian said this, this satanic power over people because of sin's dominance over them was broken through the forgiveness at the cross. Thus, Christ's forgiveness of our sins and wiping out the certificate of death appears here to be the lever releasing us from the authority of the powers of darkness. Amen? Satan has no power over the believer. And part of what we've been looking at is what some people call a future eschatology versus a realized eschatology. There are some verses in the Bible that talk about the things that God's going to do at the end times for us in the future tense. That's the future, the future eschatology. But there's also a realized eschatology where it's like, hey, it has already happened. That's what we're looking at here in Colossians. This is what you would call the realized eschatology. So certain is it that God speaks of it because he's already done it for us. He's already completed it. Even Romans later will talk about, you have been glorified. Wow. Completed. Done. There's other parts of scripture that talk about it in the future. Romans 6 says this, starting in verse 5. It's going to talk about it in the future. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. It's that future look. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. It's that future outlook. So sometimes the scriptures emphasize that aspect. Other times it emphasizes the aspect of it already having occurred for us. The Colossians passage, it's in the past tense. It's right now. It's been realized in our lives. Listen, here's what this means. Being raised with Christ, we are provided with all the power we need to conquer any sinful impulse. Any sinful impulse. We have already been, if you've been raised with Christ, if you've been filled with him, you've been buried, died with him, baptized into his burial, and he's made you alive, then you have all the power. And whose power is it? I mean, it's God's. It's him the one doing it. You have the power of Christ to resist. Whatever might beset you, you have the power of Christ. Well, how do you say goodbye to your old life? Um, How is this done? Well, back in Colossians, he tells us, verse 12, you were raised with him through faith. That's how you do it, through faith. Through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So, We say goodbye to our old life. We say goodbye to our sin. We say goodbye to our anger, our unrighteousness, our bitterness, our vileness, pride, hatred. We say goodbye to it all. It's like the, you know, the old days when people got on a ship and everyone would be, you know, the people not getting on the ship would be on the pier saying goodbye to them, you know, and and then the ship pulls away. And then what do you do? Like everyone's waving goodbye. Well, I mean, it's like you're on the ship, Okay. You're on the ship, and you're, you're pulling out. So, so you're waving goodbye to your old life. That means you're waving goodbye to your sin, to your old man, to your old way of living. How do you do that? By the power of Christ that God raised him from the dead. Where are we in any of this? What are we doing? What actions are we taking? All the actions that's happening are things that God is doing. Filled circumcised, buried, raised, made alive. It, listen, it makes it all the more certain because it's God's work that it is true, complete, and entirely finished. There's no undoing the work of God. What God has done can't be undone. And this is God's work. This is why we take comfort. Because it's God's work. God does the work. And he always finishes what he starts. <clears throat> if it was our work, it could be undone, but it's God's work, and it can't be undone, and it won't be undone. Listen, if it was up to you, I mean, there'd be uncertainty, all right? I mean, I love y'all, I trust y'all, but um, if my salvation was in your hands, I'd be a little uncertain, okay? Thankfully, it's not. It's in God's hands, and he always finishes his work. Listen to Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. 
Listen, God always finishes his work. He finished the work of creation, the physical work, and he, and he finishes the spiritual work through Christ in us. He finished what he started. And what does Philippians say? Verse 6, chapter 1. I am sure of this. I mean, just listen to that confidence from Paul. Well, well, how can he be confident? Because it's already, it's that realized eschatology. All the things that we have, we already have in Christ. We've been raised with him. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. How can he be sure? Because the work is God's work. And God sees it as a work that he began and he finishes. And yes, are we walking in faith? Is he sanctifying us? Is he working through us? Are we working whatever works he lays before us? Yes, 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 yes. But when it comes to our salvation, it's all of God's work. Completely, entirely, and solely. He does the work. It is a work that he and he alone does. Because of that, we have a security. We have a security in Christ. And because of that, we can take comfort. No one can take the salvation that God has given. He gives gifts. He's a good God. And he offers the gift of salvation to all who might trust and believe. He is very good, and he loves his children. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work that you have done in us and that you are doing and that you will continue to do. We thank you that you look at the entire work as complete and done and guaranteed. And so there's no uncertainty because you are the one in charge of it. You are the one who did it. And you promise that you will be there each step of the way, wherever we're at in our walk, Lord. And so, God, you've given us a life, a new life. We've been made alive with Christ. Lord, I pray for each person here that they'd walk in that newness of life. Say goodbye to their sin, to their old way of life, to their old livings, to sinful habits, because that's not who you've made them to be. Continue, Father, to be gracious to us, to fill us with your spirit, to walk in your ways. Continue, Lord, by your word to speak to us, to fill us. Continue to be glorified in us. And thank you for everything you've done for us in Christ. Thank you that we are united with him. And we have a resurrection coming. Lord, until that day, May we press on, may we be faithful, may we put our hand to the plow and not look back. For your glory, amen.